Welcome to the podcast about adapted films and the stories which inspired them. I'm your host, former porn salesman Frank Meyer, and with me, as always, is my co-host, the world's tallest basketball player kicked out of the NBA, Caleb Drickey. Thank you so much for for giving me this opportunity at a second career. Uh, it really means a lot um, uh, to have my skill set appreciated for once in my life. Uh, but today we're we're doing something a little different. We have a very special guest. Are the, are the are the allegations true, Caleb? Before we introduce our guest, the allegations that kicked you out of the NBA are they true? Um, Just yes or no. Yeah. Look, I have to discuss things with my agent. Um, I did sign. Um, non-disclosure agreements. I cannot confirm or deny the fact that I am seven foot at eleven inches tall, but I do. I can confirm uh, that I was uh, too good for those scrubs. Anyway, we have a we have a. That's right, my friend and yours, published writer. Uh, a cowboy from Montana, uh, a general piece of shit, uh, Henry Hytella. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, yeah, you, you really needed to add that last part. That really helped. Um, Hank, you wrote this bio for us. We're just reading what you wrote for us. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, we're here today. We're going to talk about the commitments. Yep, The Commitments, the 1987 Ronnie Doyle novel and the Alan Clark movie. Um, rather than talk about Ireland, which I know nothing about, I thought an easier question to start on would be, what is your favorite preparation of potato? <laughs> Incredible question. Um, this, is an, this is a boring take, and I'm really going to show just how profoundly white I am. But you cannot go wrong with a mashed. A mashed tater, throw in a little milk, a little butter... You wanna go crazy, get a little garlic in there. Fucking absolutely go nuts. It's a little parsley a- even. Look at this fucking flavor profile on this guy. Unbelievable. This is where you're a published writer. Right? What is your feeling about uh either cheddar and or like sauteed onions? <sighs> That's some Midwest shit. Um that I'm gonna disavow. Cause you know what? I live in New York now. I'm better than you. Um and I don't eat that that cheddar shit. New York, the the mashed potato capital of the West. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. How about you two? What what's your preferred tater? Hank, what Hank? Yeah, give us your tater, Hank. French fries. That's that's all I have to say. About you know what? Down the middle, boring as shit. Just like your writing. Wow. <laughs> Poutine, Hank. Poutine, yeah or nay? Poutine. Uh, you know, I, I think I've only had poutine once in my life, honestly, and I was pretty young, so I don't remember it well. It's it's a weird gap, you know. Just never gotten in at a happy hour or anything. Uh, How can you look in the mirror and say that, Hank? You've only had poutine once. You you're from Montana, which is famously uh, near Canada. Uh, have you never? Have you never? what's what's the deal is it is it sort of an american nationalism thing that that has mostly yeah um there's there's less of a french canadian influence in that part of canada because it's saskatchewan and alberta um 
which are directly above Montana. So there's, yeah, poutine's not as much of a thing as avec les Québécois. Yeah, so I've never had it in Canada either. I haven't had authentic poutine. Maybe that's the issue. Personally, I just like a, I like raw dog and potato. Just, oh, yeah? Just skin it, scrub it, just bite into that refreshing potato starch. You would. Mm-hmm. That's, raw potato. That's good shit, man. I, I, uh, I respect that a lot. It's a good. Okay, well, we've established our preferred potatoes. Uh, let's get into The Commitments. Wow, I think it's a book we have all read. Yeah or nay? Yes. Yes. I read it again after I watched uh, the film. Uh, I immediately read uh, the whole thing. It took about an hour and 20 minutes. It's very short. Uh, yeah, what's... I read it in, I read it in three and a half hours because I'm just markedly dumber than Caleb. <laughs> and well, I actually looked this up. So the average reader reads the commitments in about two hours and ten minutes. Take from that one. But the average reader reads Hank's work for about uh, one minute and four seconds before they throw it across the room. Hey, I'm looking for strong emotional reactions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so what, what are your... We've all read, read the book. Uh, we have varying relationships to it. What are your uh, relationships to, to the commitments and, and also Roddy Doyle as an author? Yeah, well, it was a fresh read for me in quarantine, and I enjoyed it a ton. It's a great book about, I think, the idea of people coming together. It follows the formation of a soul group in Dublin in the 1980s, and I think it really made me miss the getting to like work on a project with people and the way that you meet folks in like a new class or a new skill that you're learning. So it was a very comforting thing to do to check out in in quarantine, like the way that it's a very dialogue heavy book and yeah. it's got just like, it's, it's got like really propulsive energy and it's a pretty sparse novel in a lot of ways. Like there's very little background description or not much like interiority of any of the characters or descriptions of scenery, but it's these really strong personalities and just like this really excellent rhythmic dialogue. And it follows this formation of this soul group. They get together they start to have some gigs and you just have this really invested in the sense of progress and the sense of improvement as like they're forming and, and their sound is coming together. Yeah. No, I, I like how you highlighted the collaborative aspect of it uh, because yeah, I, I came to the uh, book a lot later uh, than I came to the movie. And I feel like the book did a, it, it, it dives in a lot more into, into the process of kind of starting a band, having those discussions about what you're going to be. Um, I was in a, decent amount of really bad bands in high school and college and um yeah that that whole process those arguments you have over um what subgenre you want to you know incorporate into your sound next uh why the saxophonist is getting into avant-garde or nick coleman and shit um all of that's really true to life at least in my experience and, and it makes sense because that ronnie doyle um that he gets asked all the time have you been in a band? And he gets kind of annoyed with the question, apparently, because he gets in at pretty much almost every reading he does, just because he nailed it so hard in this book. Um, you, you mentioned propulsive language, and I think that's kind of the the bedrock of of the book because it's it's not just the dialogue, which is so sharp, and it's it's um it's uh it's it's in an Irish dialect, and and feels very authentic and it's essentially a bunch of boys bullshitting with each other and calling each other names 
you know, in 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 uh, in their in their uh, Dublin slang, which is great. But I also want to talk about the language of music in in the book a little bit because I part of the reason that um, the book is such a quick read is that about half of it is perform is onomatopoeic performances of soul songs and it is um it's so funny and creative uh and and again propulsive not to just directly transpose lyrics of motown hits into a novel but to using uh using sounds uh describe uh to uh to the reader what those sounds or what those songs sound like reinterpreted by a bunch of working class bums from the north side of Dublin and and how joyful it is for them to sing it and i think that is i think this is one of the few novels that can convey the beauty of another art form in this in this form of music novels are are obviously have so much to do with with language and with the written word and I think the commitments, I think its greatest triumph, which I think is, it's, it's, it's funny. It's really well written. It's a great character study, but I think it's probably its greatest success is the way that it's able to translate the beauty of another art form into one that is traditionally favored by, let's be honest, snobs. I think you make a very good point there. And I, and I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, as the cliche goes, like writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's a ab- like very difficult thing to do well. Um, and, and yet Doyle, Doyle just nails it. And I also want to kind of spotlight how, um, Doyle with his use of dialogue, um, his almost complete lack of interiority in this book. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem like a very Irish novel from that. Lens. Um, a lot of classic Irish novelists, James Joyce, of course, kind of known for developing interior monologues. Um, more recent examples like Edna O'Brien or Amar McBride, um, kind of approaching consciousness in a new way. Uh, Doyle, I mean, he, he writes this almost like a playwright with the dialogue, but the one, I, I, I think what Caleb's saying about the music and his, um, yeah, his approach to incorporating lyrics, um, going almost, um, and maybe I'm getting a little snobbish here, uh, but going almost post language with, you know, with, with those lyrics, with these just sounds he's trying to encapsulate. Um, don't worry about being snobbish, Hank. You were snobbish when you name dropped James Joyce. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically, I think with these lyrics, that's where he actually owns kind of the the Irish writing side. I mean, obviously, he's writing about Ireland. Uh, his character's Irish. He's working in that milieu, of course. But his method is, it, it almost has a, the dialogue side of it almost has more in common with, say, American detective novels, uh, until you get into these lyrics that could could almost be out of Ulysses if they weren't like, contemporary soul songs. For me, I mean, going back to the onomatopoeia of it and sort of to talk about, try to break down how that works in the novel is that it'll begin with, it, it, they assemble the songs basically as they're doing these rehearsals together before the lyrics come in as the final ingredient. And so it'll be, uh, 
this character on drums, and he'll talk about their kind of giddy bomb, ba pow, ba bomb, ba pow, which sounds really lame for me to just sort of like uh, vocalize that into my microphone, but just reads great, and you actually like, can be almost like swaying or shaking with it as you're reading the novel. And then on top of it, finally, those soul lyrics coming in. And I think a lot of times, what I liked a lot was they, it's not just the refrain that comes in every time, or if the, there's a lot of James Brown songs that are in the novel uh, that don't get to make it into the movie, unfortunately, and how purposeful they are with just breaking down the James Brown's kind of opening routines and these like call and response with the band before he gets into get up off of your thing. It's it's odd to to kind of talk about this novel because it's so short and it's so quick. Uh, I don't know if there's if there's much to say beyond the dialogue, which I get, or beyond beyond the prose and the dialogue, which again I think are so so brilliant. But I think we can we can maybe move on to like what what the story of the novel is and the story of Roddy Doyle. Oh yeah, so. Um... Yeah, something something I didn't realize um, until doing research for this podcast. Uh, the Commitments was originally self-published by Roddy Doyle, actually. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't able to find a publisher for it, so he he self-published it, and it kind of became this like cult phenomenon, and eventually found a much wider release. Um, and it was it was semi-controversial in Ireland. There's this fascinating kind of seesawing in, in Ireland between in, in the writing community at least between writing like very cutting edge uh, profane work and then how the conservative Catholic culture reacts to that and it seems like pretty much all great Irish writers have encountered that and um, Roddy Doyle's version of that was uh, he actually received death threats after uh, the commitments broke out um, and something that's almost worse in Ireland. Um, he was actually talked about in Sunday mass uh, by multiple priests as like a cautionary tale <laughs> for, uh, for like, you know, someone who's kind of gone off the deep end and forsaken God. So that'll be us once this podcast gets released to the public. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I also didn't know that this was, self-published but i do know that rowdy doyle sort of emerged from relative obscurity he was a school teacher um in the north side of dublin uh and in 1987 he self-published um uh, the commitments which became like hank said kind of a cult phenomenon and despite being self-published it was uh optioned in 1988 like very very soon after uh it was published in the uk um outside of ireland so Pretty much as soon as it hit the market, it gets snapped up. Um, and Roddy Doyle is is tasked with writing the first draft of the script, which he's never done before. He's again, he's a school teacher and a, sort of a, a novelist on the side, had never written a screenplay before. Um, so he writes the first draft, and uh, it's not very good. Apparently, it's it's a mess. It needs some work, which makes sense. Um, because although the the novel is itself is very simple and and seems easy to transpose um, into a screenplay, he has no experience with the film before. So um, uh, a pair of um, British TV writers who uh, do sitcoms that I've never heard of, uh, named Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, 
are uh, tasked with finding writers to to take a second crack at it. And uh, this is something that I find pretty interesting. Much like Dick Cheney's vice presidential search committee in 2000, they choose themselves uh, <laughs> to rewrite <laughs> to rewrite this screenplay, which is an incredible flex. I love this so much. I did, I did not think we'd be mentioning Dick Cheney's <laughs> vice presidency <laughs> on this podcast. So they uh, agreed to rewrite the film. And around this time, Alan Parker, who's kind of, he's a British director, but has for the past 30 years or so, has been mostly floating around Hollywood making... Combin- a, a, a weird mix of like pretty mediocre prestige dramas, um, like Birdie with uh, Nick Cage um, and Mississippi Burning, which is about the civil rights movement. Gene Hackman, right? With Gene, yeah, yeah. So it's like big, big star-driven, kind of not very good, kind of corny dramas. And then also, um, he works a lot with with musical films. So he, he directed Fame in 1980 um, about a, a arts high school in, in New York. Uh, and then he also directed The Wall, the, the Pink Floyd concert film, which I think is really interesting, especially considering the second half of this film that we're going to get to, which kind of becomes a concert film. But he signs on after he reads the novel and he is he becomes fascinated by Doyle's language, much like we are, and the way that he is able to convey character using pretty much only only dialogue and no interiority. Um, and so he signs on to direct the film and is given final cut. He's given full creative control. Um, so then we go to casting. Um, Parker and his casting directors decide that they mostly don't want to have professional actors playing his parts. So um, the casting is, is mostly non-professional actors, just kind of uh, a lot of like a pretty wide casting call for professional musicians in Dublin. Um, and so they mostly get kind of no-name sort of musicians who are active in the scene, but not famous. There are no rock stars. Uh, with one notable exception, um, they did not want an amateur to play Joey Lips Fagan. Um, Alan Parker's first choice for this role was uh, Van Morrison. Okay, I have heard this too. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Which I think this is a, f- this would have been a fascinating casting choice. Uh, Van Morrison is an incredible stage performer. He's, uh, and is so expressive. I don't know if he's any good as an actor. And is a legendary prick. Um, and apparently uh, he meets with Alan Parker and the meeting doesn't go very well and he refuses to be in the movie. But he does offer up his uh, his songs for the soundtrack. And Alan Parker stiffs him. There are zeros at Van Morrison songs in this movie. Which I f- fucking love that Alan Parker told Van Morrison to fuck off. I love this. I don't know if you have anything more to say about Van, but... I mean, it's a great irony that um, the kind of Blue-Eyed Soul movie has none of the Blue-Eyed Soul masters' songs in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just don't... I mean, I I did not write Joey Lillips' actor, who is terrific in this movie, and... And that's Johnny Murphy. He's a, a stage actor from, from Dublin. 
but he is he is the only the only member of the of the main group the commitments who is not a professional musician he does not play the trumpet um he is dubbed his his performances are dubbed okay yeah johnny johnny murphy is excellent in this movie uh and a big part of and maybe one of the truest transpositions of the character into the movie from the book mm-hmm. uh that character we'll get into this with the plot he's kind of like the sherpa almost for this music group as they're trying to discover themselves and their own sound and that you need that kind of warmth and that sort of mentor quality from him. I don't think Van Morrison could be convincing as it, to be honest. I just think he is a little too much of an asshole to be <laughs> no. your kindly older brother. I I agree with that. I think I want to see Van Morrison almost always. I don't think he's a particularly good fit for this film, other than the fact that he is a very famous soul singer. Um but I just love him and I want to, I want to see him. But yeah, no, Johnny Murphy is terrific in this film. Um, and my one other note is I think the other important performance in this film is not the lead, which is Johnny rabbit, Jimmy rabbit, but it's, it's Deco cuff. So Robert Arkins, who plays Jimmy rabbit was initially slated to play Deco. He was, he was a singer in, um, in Dublin and in, in the book, Deco is kind of like a young, hot, you know, singer he's a classic front man and robert arkins is young and hot and he actually sings the the song over the opening credits um he's got a good voice he's a good singer but he is recast because in one of the 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 great auditions that they had the the film's uh voice coach who's going to coach the the, the movie's singers his 16 year old son andrew strong got up on stage and sang mustang sally uh and that's robert strong and he gets the role of Deco Cuff. And I just mostly want to break this news that Andrew Strong, who plays Deco in this movie, he is 17 years old when this film is shot. And he is the oldest looking 17 year old I've ever seen in my life. He's just a big snarly brute. Yeah. But it's like his opening scene is as a fat drunk at a wedding. And... (laughs) He sells it totally. And I should say, I, we're, we're being mean to to Andrew Strong a little bit, but he fucking owns this movie. He is so, so good. I mean, he's, yeah. he's an incredible singer with a bonkers voice, but also in his, non-musi- his non-musical performance, his actual acting, he is great. He's so crude and mean and nasty. This is a wonderful performance. I love Andrew Strong a lot. I'm really bummed that he didn't really have an acting career after this because I think he's great. Um, With that, should we crack into the plot of the movie? Yeah, let's do it. So we open in Dublin in 1991, I guess, even though the book's in 1987. It doesn't give you a year, but something about the... how present this movie is filmed and how much background footage and just shot on location feel it is, uh, that it's, uh, it, it just seems to take place like exactly as they're filming it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it begins with our main star, Robert Arkins, Jimmy Rabbit shopping for records at a, at a flea market in, in Dublin. I want to talk about the visual of Barrytown in this, um, Barrytown is is present in in the novel as I mean it's it's the neighborhood where they're from, but because there's almost no description of the world around the characters in the novel, this is the first time we actually get to see North Dublin and Barrytown specifically, and it looks like shit. 
it's brown it's dirty you got like old guys looking at horses teeth um in the middle of the fair it's like it's urban but it feels like it kind of feels like the 19th century it feels you're kind of waiting for someone to like toss their chamber pot out the window it looks like shit there's so much like wildlife in it for being a city uh like goats and and mules coming through and and horses just just on these in between decaying cement buildings It really looks depressing and like the place where people would really need a great band to cheer them up. I I think also he's shopping for records, but he's also hawking cassettes and and t-shirts. Um, so this is this is our again in 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 the novel, Jimmy is a a pretty unexplored life. He works at a shop, and here Jimmy does not have a job. He's got connections on the black market. He, you know, he's a hustler. He's, you know, he's selling bootleg cassette tapes and VCRs and uh, a lot of it, which is probably stolen. But he's a slick talking, you know, scumbum. He's great. Fit for management. (laughs) It's a it's a it's a really good choice, I think, for the movie uh, and for the book. And part of what I think makes it such a unique book about musicians is that it's main character is not a musician he's just the logistics kind of bully behind the scenes that keeps everything running mm-hmm. like you know it's uh because the structure of the novel is all about this it's this kind of mandala of seeing how this musical group forms together uh i think opening with the guy the one guy who doesn't play an instrument in the entire movie is 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 the way to do it well it's a nice reversal too of kind of the general rock and roll movie formula which often cast the manager as you know, this despicable the antagonist yeah yeah the antagonist yeah and, and you have that conversation between Jimmy and um and and this other um kind of industry character uh, where they're kind of lamenting how hard it is to be managers when you have to basically clean up after the entire band after all their views and sex and drugs and all of that like you're the one holding this shit together essentially yeah i would say the only other movie i can think of that is this sympathetic to managers is spinal tap yeah uh it's <laughs> a great point like the, the manager of spinal tap is a very important and sympathetic character <laughs> <laughs> no i i think i no i i agree and and it becomes clear that jimmy unlike anyone else here has a vision for what he wants his life to be. Um, and, and, and knows what people want because after his, he initially strike, strikes out on selling things at the fair, but then he gets on the train and starts selling VCRs to, to kids and they love Jimmy and he seems to make a lot of money from selling to kids. He knows what young people want and knows that he wants to get out of Berrytown. That's what we know about Jimmy. And then he goes and meets up with a pair of musician friends who are uh, uh, a wedding a wedding band named And 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 that are having some... They seem to be kind of new wavy, but don't really understand why. Uh, and, uh, and there's some internal strife in And And And. Important question before we go too much, because the wedding is a great scene. At your wedding, band or DJ? You have to go DJ. 
the wedding band is always going to be play bad covers of songs that you don't want. Hank, well, I think I'm going to get all my friends who are musicians, and we're going to have a little, <laughs> have a little band, have a little jam. <laughs> Frank will get on saxophone for a bit. Oh, my God. I, if you really were going to recruit your friends for, for, for wedding talent, I was a wedding server for a summer, so I'd probably just be bringing out, like, crab cakes to people. <laughs> See, you you two together, it would be the most aggressive wedding like, servers. <laughs> Caleb and Frank just, like, forcing drinks in front of people's faces. <laughs> we are both so hospitable. I can't believe that you would... Aggressively hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> This one wedding I worked at, this dude who came in, he was wearing, um, everyone else was in suits. He was in a black and white Hawaiian shirt and black pants and white sneakers. And when I tried to bring him, like, uh, I think it was crab cakes or something, he's like, oh, I better not. I'm driving home. And that was his, like, refusal for appetite. <laughs> he also had a, he also was bald and has a soul patch. Was his name The Lips? I wish. I you don't, you know, they, uh, you don't catch names too much on, uh, work on the wedding floor, unfortunately. Um, it's, it's for everyone there, it's their most memorable day that ever happened for me. It was just like a shift, you know, it's a very yeah, weird, yeah. uh, but this wedding is, um, Jimmy meets these two musician friends and, and, and he sees Andrew Strong drunkenly doing karaoke at the wedding and he runs into his kind of long-term crush. Imelda Quirk, played by Angelina Ball. When I, I I was introduced to this movie when I was fourteen, and uh, immediately, like every fourteen-year-old boy who ever watched this movie, fell so deeply in love with every woman in this movie. But I just for sure this is great casting. Angelina Ball is beautiful, and she's also so funny. Uh, in this movie. This is another great performance, and she doesn't have that much to do. She's mostly there to be watched and and pined for. But she is great. Yeah, it's kind of the magic or the secret sauce in this movie is that no one person gets that much to do unless they're a musician on stage. And even then, they're mostly just in like ensemble scenes around that. But because they've recruited all of their talent from like the best performers in Dublin clubs and bars, they're all just like really radiant really watchable people yes she's got a great a great smile and like a giggle that like you can just throw in a crowd scene and it she it's just it seems very natural it's also a pretty body wedding i remember like they're (laughs) everyone has a glass of beer people are spilling drinks on each other (laughs) Uh, they're spilling them on does i think someone spills a drink on a yeah, on a baby or a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it uh, it looks this like it. I've never been to a wedding, which is absurd, but it's true. I never have. This seems like we're gonna keep the streak going. You're you're not getting invited to Hank and mine's wedding. We're gonna keep the streak. Absolutely, <laughs> you fucking locked out. Uh, so yeah, we 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 meet uh, Outspan and and Dylan and Deco and Imelda and uh, Jimmy doesn't know it yet, but. He knows that these are people that he's fascinated by. I kind of want to talk about Gen X, because I think this is a very Gen X movie. And this is the first time that we see Jimmy express disdain for something, which is a very... And I know Gen X is a uniquely American thing, and Ireland obviously is different, generational, whatever. But I'm American, and Americans 
you know, uh, thrust their own uh, values and opinions on other people. So I'm going to say this is a Gen X movie. And Jimmy Rabbit is a Gen X guy who thinks it's super lame to care about anything. And this is the first time that we see him express disdain for a musical genre that is earnest, which in this case is new wave music. Um, he thinks and, and, and is lame as shit. Um, cause you know, they play synths and like try to innovate and I mean, there, we should be clear. This is a bad band. We hear about 40 seconds of their playing and, and they suck, but Jimmy has absolutely no respect for them whatsoever. And this is something that's going to, uh, repeat itself over, over the course of the film. Imelda Quirk has like a husband or boyfriend who is just kind of a classic, uh, just like a wet blanket of a dude that she's with, essentially. <laughs> but he has a job. That's the key line. None of them understand why Imelda is attracted to him. And they say, well, he's got a job. I mean, it's, it's the 80s depression in Ireland carrying over into the 90s. That's how bad things were. But Joey sees enough in the group that he wants to get some kind of a band together and so he puts out an ad in the paper recruiting for the hardest working band in Dublin the commitments which is kind of i it's it's carried over from the book as well i love the arrogance of picking your band's name before you've got really any of the musicians <laughs> lined up for it it's great uh no jimmy i get i think again this comes down to his jimmy rabbit's disdain for pretty much everyone and everything around him. But uh, Jimmy Rabbit knows what the best things in the world are, and one of those things is a band with a the in it. So they are the commitments before they even know what instruments they have and who's going to be in it. But uh, but they have a name. Um, and I, I do want to talk about this this sort of montage of auditions, which I think is is very funny and very well edited. But before we, we, we talk about that, we first meet, um, Jimmy Rabbit's dad, who's played by, by Calm Meany. Calm fucking Meany. Who is, again, has probably three and a half minutes of screen time in this film and eats every single second. Calm Meany as Mr. Rabbit, he loves Elvis. Doesn't much love his kids, but he loves Elvis. <laughs> and this is, this is fucking great. And I, before we, get into what he means for this film i kind of like play america's favorite game which is uh let's dunk on dads it's it's a proven fact that as soon as one has a kid one becomes obsessed with a particular historical figure and in this case mr rabbit loves elvis and so i want to know when you have or if you have kids who who do you have lined up whole pot Pull pot. You're gonna be a big pull pot no, guy. Be a big, I love that. Big pothead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna be. Um, I'm definitely gonna be just like a Jerry Garcia, and I'm and I'm already like on my way to being a like a a, a dadhead. <laughs> but I'm I'm just gonna be like, man, the way Jerry played it, you never. Oh shit! I've just missed their ball game. Oh god, I gotta pick them up from school. <laughs> but like, I'm gonna just gonna be this like smoky minivan <laughs> with a bunch of stickers on the back that. The, the window rolls down and just like a cloud of smoke and like bad smelling food comes out and my kids have to ride in the back because I have too much like memorabilia stacked up in the chairs. 
Yeah, and I'll be rolling up behind you in a 71 Buick listening to the blood on the tracks bootlegs because you know I'm going to be a Dylan Day. Sorry, Hank, this is this is the future, not yesterday. What's your daddy, Caleb? My dad is a big Shakespeare guy. So like he he doesn't he like has of course the complete collection of all the Shakespeare plays, but he also like he like there's this like Shakespeare scholar at Columbia who like releases these a year in the life of Shakespeare, which is kind of just like a rundown of like English history and what's going on in the theater scene in like 1617, the year that, you know, Lear was released and like all of it's like a 300-page, you know, context for the play and my father fucking eats those up he loves him some tudor era playwrights and bill shakespeare in particular he loves that shit are you gonna be a shakespeare daddy uh i mean like i think i'm again like kind of already there so i think it's kind of cheating um i think i might get into really into like like weird 19th century industrialists like I don't know who invented I don't know who invented the mason jar. Miles Mason. <laughs> Maybe I'll get really into that guy, and you know, like start read like eight hundred page biographies about him. Yeah, biography is very dad. Huge dad shit. You know, I work at a bookstore, and I can I can say bi- biography is mostly self. Bi- by and for dads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David McCullough, you know, he's dad. David McCullough kind of is daddy though. Uh, he's like. <laughs> I, there's a reason he's like the most popular historian, uh, recognizable. And he's good looking. He has a very nice voice. His daddy. <laughs> okay, so then we get to, to the montage of the auditions, and I think we here we have another major departure from from the book. Not just in the like we actually see these auditions, which are mostly pretty bad. Um, but I I think. The kind of people who audition in the film are much different than the kind of people who audition in in the novel. In the novel, U2 is much more present and, and the need to distance themselves from U2. But I, what I was really struck by, and again, getting back to Gen X, most of the people who are, that Jimmy Rabbit dismisses are either punks or folkies, or they wear makeup like they're in The Cure. Um, and I think this is interesting because those are three subgroups that are earnest and believe things and jimmy rabbit because of that jimmy rabbit absolutely dismisses them out of hand um because there's nothing less cool than actually believing something in 1990 dublin when you know the economy is shit and the revolution has been won and there's and life is still awful so so a counterpoint to that caleb um is that I feel like Jimmy's take on soul music is a very earnest take. That it's uh, the working man's music, uh, that it's kind of like your only form of salvation. Uh, and he, he almost takes like a secular religious approach to it. Um, and like playing the perfect soul song as a group is going to, you know, make everything okay. So he, he brings that same earnestness to the music he likes. He just has disdain for other people's. So my my question about that, because we can get into this sort of socialist message of uh, of his band. Does he actually believe in it? I think 
I think he loves the the language of you know soul is the language of the people, but I think he mostly likes it because it's fun. It reminds him of sex, <laughs> and it's cool in that way. But I don't know if he actually. I I think Jimmy Rabbit is fundamentally a bullshitter. Yeah, I I wonder about about the sex thing though, because I feel like out of all of the all of the male characters in this movie, Jimmy seems to least interested in. Uh, seeing the women as, as like sex, as, as objects, as people to like to like desire. Well, he is in love with Imelda. I think is pretty uh, in the in the. Ta- I don't think it's too much of a, re- or at least has like a very deep crush on Imelda. Uh, but he's also like he's the manager and he's the one who puts the foot down and says that none of the members in the band can sleep with each other. And so I do think it kind of feeds back into Caleb's like Gen X cynicism of. He likes them being sexy and attractive, but is anti-relationships, anti-romance, basically. I agree that that over the course of the film that Jimmy like really falls in love with this band in a serious way. And I think this is kind of, that's his character arc. But I think at the start of this film, Jimmy mostly wants a band because he wants to get Imelda in it because he wants to hit on her. Um, and, and we're going to talk about this, his, the introduction to Bernie. In a little bit, but he is absolutely not above using Bernie to get what he really wants, which is a chance to talk to Imelda. Um, let's let's talk about this montage. I don't know if you, if you have. Well, I love it, and I love thinking of it as kind of um, because the background of the movie is they recruit all this this talent from the different clubs in Dublin, and it's them. the The auditions for the movies were as much basically just tryouts of different musicians. And I kind of love that subtext behind it. And the fact that musicians that auditioned for the movie that didn't get in still got filtered and sifted into the audition montage, which is long. It's like four or five minutes, maybe up to even like six or seven. It it really, it goes on for a while of just all this different talent. And it's, uh, I love how much like poor a lot of these people look or just like scrappy and like there's kids who roll in. Uh The, when he makes the kids sing in the street, <laughs> Jimmy doesn't even go downstairs to greet him. He just pops his head out the window and demands that this child sings for him. And then he's like, no, you don't have it. Fuck off. And the kid just like runs away to play with his friends. <laughs> I think this is another thing I love about this movie. It's just like the sort of low level slapstick violence that's perpetrated against children. Yeah. <laughs> it's... It's so funny. <laughs> Kids are constantly being like smacked across the head and it's great. It's always funny. Yeah. And I mean, it's true to the source material there too, because that's, that's almost a Roddy Doyle trademark. Like it, it appears a little in the commitments and a lot in Hattie Clark. Ha ha ha. His um, later novel that I think it won the 93 Booker, I want to say, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the slapstick um, just, yeah, just, I mean, these kids are like little proto hustlers themselves too. They're trying to, they're they're trying to find a way in. There's there's a very specific joy to them, like playing in these garbage strewn streets as like a tire burns in the background, <laughs> <laughs> and a shaggy dog, you know, barks angrily at everyone. So I think it goes a long ways to establishing the the Berrytown setting as well that we were talking about earlier. Uh, this montage um, just just brings in even more, you know, twenty second characters essentially who 
you know, round out this neighborhood. Well, I think it's a part of why this movie's had such a lasting impact in Ireland and is like has shown up on like Irish magazines like readers' polls as the single best Irish movie repeatedly, is that even if like a lot of people get turned down in the audition process to be a, the main characters in the movie, that it wants to recycle and reuse them in another part and it just gives just like so many people off like just so many just just, just bums, just like regular people, like they're like four seconds in a movie or something. It's a wonderful community feel to this scene, even if it is a bunch of people getting the door slammed in their face for six minutes straight. And the sort of the punchline of this scene is uh, Jimmy answering the door um, to a, a punky looking guy uh, who who doesn't understand what people are lining up for, and the only reason he can he can possibly comprehend that people would be this excited for something would be is that there was a new drug dealer. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think this this scene uh, both captures how much life is hidden in this kind of sort of buried away working class neighborhood but like also how dead it is that the the only reason anyone could possibly comprehend there being joy uh is that someone else has started selling drugs and i think it's very funny but like also that joke is doing real work in establishing what this world is yeah and i i also like that there's never a moment when the um when his family is like dishing on him for wanting to work in a band or there's some kind of like false dichotomy of working class being against music or something. I think, I think you're right that it's about showing how much life is in the neighborhood and how much like every, every schmo out of work still has some talent or some gift that they think is worth sharing for people, regardless of whether that's true or not. Yeah. And that working class people experience joy like anyone else too. I mean, there are so many movies that take this kind of dirty realist approach to poverty almost like way too far and yeah just kind of revel in the misery and don't give characters like jimmy like these other musicians these you know flickers of joy that anyone has so uh we wrap up auditions uh we've gone through uh, a pretty extended extended bit um and come out with with two new characters we have dean who uh um, who's learning to play the saxophone. He, notably, he has a saxophone, but doesn't know how to play it. He was It was given to him when his uncle's lung collapsed, which is a great little detail, again, about just how dire life is in Barrytown. <laughs> but, you know, he has a saxophone, and that's good enough. And, uh, and so uh, Dean joins the crew, and the four of them head to the pub where they meet their other new member, who is a, um, a mover, from another part of Dublin who plays the drums and uh, his influence is Animal from the Muppets, which is another <laughs> another detail from the novel, but it's just so funny. <laughs> um, a great bit. Um, so they hang out. Uh, we see Imelda again as she walks into the bar and again as she's this unattainable beauty, but they all, fan- they, they all fall in love with Imelda right away um and here jimmy hatches a little plan he's gonna get imelda in the band by uh by going through her friend bernie who runs the who runs the uh the chip truck so jimmy walks goes and he visits bernie and he asks her uh hey do you want to join a band and i don't know maybe if you want to bring your 
friend Imelda, that would be okay too. Oh no, he plays this pretty good, and when it's just like, ah, eh, what's that one friend of yours? Uh, 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 Imelda or something? Which is a. Uh, <laughs> I got caught one time in high school doing that with like an ex who I didn't want to acknowledge. I was like, yeah, I think her name's like uh, uh, Mary or something. And then my friends were like, you used to date her. You can't pretend you don't know her name. <laughs> um, I actually did forget uh, an ex's name a couple of weeks ago, but that's because I, <laughs> I, I, I have memory issues due to a concussion. But uh, anyway. Jimmy goes home. He thinks he has his band all assembled, um, but he gets one last caller. And this, my friends, is the mythic blowing in from the Arthurian mists, Joey the Lipsfagan, uh, man of mystery. What a fucking character. What a performance. I, I love Joey the Lips in this. And we, you told me the actor's name earlier and I already forgot it, but Johnny Murphy. Yeah, I love this character. I love how Johnny Murphy plays this character. He is, he reminds me of those kind of, um, uh, sort of like wispy brained hippies that you meet who, I, I love, I, I like that you call him Arthurian because he does just feel like a wizard or kind of just magical. And it is not even, I mean, it like is maybe the most trite part of the movie to have this like mentor figure come in and teach them like what it is to be a soul band and what it is to be musicians. But Johnny Murphy just sells it so well and is so warm and supportive and is is just like utterly convincing as like your dad's weird friend who used to tour with a bunch of musicians, you know? But I, again, it's, he has this, this air of mystery mystery around him. He says he's toured with all of the greats and he, he played with James Brown and wasn't at his best because he had a head cold, which is another incredible detail yeah. um, that he blew it with uh, with James Brown. But it seems like he he must be full of shit. I get he's he's got these crooked teeth and he's like a cornball ponytail. Um, it's he, everything about him rings hollow, and at the same time, you cannot help but be entranced by him. He's got this this low, uh, seductive voice, and he speaks really slowly. Um, he's he's not an ugly man, but he's so hot, um, despite being not at all attractive. He's he's just magnetic. And he even if even if you don't believe every name he drops or experience he's claimed to have had he believes everything he's telling you, which is like, it kind of just doubles back on itself. It's yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he thinks he's played with James Brown, so like, who am I to say no? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he seduces everyone in this movie. Seduces the rest of the band. Seduces Jimmy almost more than anyone. Yeah. He's completely in the thrall of him. Um, seduces at least two, maybe three of the women in the band. Yeah. Without, without trying at all. <laughs> um, it seems like. Um, and I mean, part of it might just be because the, you know, the bar for men in this movie is so low that it's like, oh, he's not harassing <laughs> us like all the other guys in the band. I guess we'll like ride with him on his motorcycle. But he's like genuinely charming. So, so it makes sense. No. And, and I think he, he is maybe the best line in the whole movie, which is the Lord sent me and he blows my trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> that just, that just rules. Again, he's. 
a a truly mystical figure. He's great. Uh and and also in in this sequence we we kind of we get the the first um the first sign of the world outside of Barrytown. Um which is he says uh the Irish wouldn't be shooting their asses off if they had soul. Um which is a reference to the troubles up in Belfast. Um you know the sort of the Irish Revolution has has already come and gone in Dublin, but it's very much still ongoing. And I, I only bring this up because again, this is one thing that Jimmy could believe in if he ch- so chose, but has I think it has chosen not to be an Irish revolutionary, or even necessarily like strongly anti against it. Like he he just feels genuinely apathetic. Yeah, yeah, and seems it seems likely that. If he met, you know, a member of the IRA, you'd think they were a dork. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there are things going on in the world that he could care about if he chose to, but he just chooses not to. Um, which, again, I, it feels very, very Gen X and 1990 to me. Along with um, his his experiences and his, and his love of soul, Joey the Lips Fagan also brings them their rehearsal space, which is the garage behind his mom's house. <laughs> um, I don't know this actress's name, but who who plays uh, Joey's mom is, again, has about 40 seconds of screen time and is so funny. Um, I think she has like two lines and is otherwise just like all like spacey bug eyes. And at one point she like, plays a screechy violin and kind of screeches hymns. <laughs> she's forgot when she plays the violin. <laughs> she's so funny. Um just another great, like not even half a scene performance from her. But this film is packed with just with weirdos. Um yeah, what, what do you guys th- think it means um about this movie that there are all these really incredible and very memorable micro performances? throughout it that that that's kind of what stands out these you know short spurts of acting of um personality yeah dublin is just strewn with with life and not even you know life that you necessarily want to see but there is life everywhere in in all of its in all of its forms even if it's often uh really deeply weird i don't know i love it yeah and just that like if you're working class and you live in just a crappy living room near a decaying cement building you still have a violin you can play you still have this like spark and creativity in your life um or you have at least a a picture of elvis that you have next to your picture of the pope (laughs) which is a great detail in jimmy rabbit's home (laughs) uh i Cole Meany is so good. <laughs> he's so good in this. He's good. He's, he is a genuinely like good all the time. And I was looking him up before we recorded just to look at his, all of his film credits. And it is funny how many American movies he's been and how what his names are in them. Um, I almost was going to try to build a game show component out of Guess It because it literally is like he's in Con Air as DE agent Connor O'Brien and like his father <laughs> Flannery or he's like. Tom McFiggins, the <laughs> housekeeper. <laughs> One of our great stand-up, stereotypical Irishmen, and I wouldn't have it any other way. 
he rules. I love him. Anyway, uh, so yeah, we, we, we get to the rehearsal space and the girls show up. Um, and this is the first time that we meet um, Natalie, who is uh, played by Maria Boyle. And boy, oh boy, was I lo- in love with Maria Boyle when I was 14 years old. I was in love with her last week when I watched this movie. <laughs> yes. This, she, again, this is not a, a showy a performance as um, as Bernie gets to do or as Imelda gets to do um, or, or any of the boys get to do. But she is a just quiet dignity in this movie. She's great. Um, yeah. She's great. Another another just like side character who is great. I think she might uh, have a voice that rivals uh, the, whoever plays Deco. Is it Andrew Strong? Yeah, Andrew yeah. Strong. I think, yeah, yeah. I think her yeah. voice is that good too. Agreed. No, that's that's the thing. Is this band sounds great, uh, but not at first. Not at first. And this is we great great call. We go into our first rehearsal. Uh, oh no no first first Jimmy has to rent the equipment which is this is where we see the dark side of Jimmy Rabbit he he goes to his black market man what do you think about this it's my least favorite threat in the movie is that he like borrows the equipment and then has to like owe this like loan shark money it ha- it has like a decent enough payoff later in the movie but it's it's just I think it is a totally unnecessary piece of drama. I think it's a little silly in the, what has otherwise been a very like lived in and strong movie. It's in the novel. This is a real choice. So why? Sorry, it's it's not in the novel. So it was added to the film. This is a choice made by um, uh, the the adapters, uh, Clement and Lafrenet. Um, what do you what do you think is is their motivation? I think it is to try to give. Robert Arkins something to do for the rest of the movie or something for him to be invested in because he doesn't get to be in the great performances in the back half of the movie. And to be honest, I I don't think Robert Arkins is great in this movie. I think he's my kind of the weakest performance in the movie. I think essentially all of my favorite and most memorable parts in this movie do not include him, including this threat of him owing money to a black market dealer. Because the movie is not that much about hustle once the band is coming together like it's these escalating gigs that they're able to get and you can tell they're making compromises and having to put up with things like renting out like an old ice cream truck to move their equipment but it stops really being a movie about like trying to scrape by and like get by with little like by the end of the movie they have a green room before they go on set and stuff like they kind of made it and so it, it just i think it is kind of unnecessary sort of flair to have uh, this black market subplot. Unless, like, well, maybe you guys loved it, and I just like, shat on it for like way too long. But <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I, I personally, I think I would have loved to have seen a little more uh, in-depth look at the process of booking gigs for Jimmy's character. Um, as as I said earlier, I've I've been in a few bands, and, and booking gigs can be hard. Well, if they sound like you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, and and it's, and they kind of hint at it, like the, like one of my favorite parts of the movie is the is the heroin benefit concert uh, <laughs> that they play in collaboration yeah. <laughs> with a local priest. Um, and it's like those kind of th- like you're a band starting out. That's going to be basically all your gigs. Like I, 
you know, bands I've been in, we played at Hot Springs, played at co-ops, played on ranches, like played at a car show. You play all these like stupid bullshit venues that you don't necessarily want to be at. Uh, but you gotta, that's how you gotta work, work your way up. My dad grew up in the, like a small, very German town in Minnesota and his, uh, his, he was in a, a polka band and <laughs> two of his gigs he has told me about is one is, uh, they were on a pontoon boat that would just circle the lake and play polka <laughs> to the docks on the 4th of July or something. And then another one is he played, uh, a tractor dealerships like giveaway or something at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, right. Wow. Wow. That anecdote had fucking steam. I've like, <laughs> <laughs> never. Uh, no, I, I, I do agree with your reading of this subplot as they need to show Jimmy hustling. Um, but but I think there are better ways to show that than like actually getting him involved with, you know, probably this guy's probably I'm going to guess is involved with the IRA in some way. But it's it's never I mean. It's kind of vaguely alluded to, but never confirmed. But like this is, and maybe if you want to be generous, like this is like, this is the closest that he comes with it to engaging with politics is, you know, you know, pawning uh, equipment from, from terrorists. Uh, Yeah. So, and and then finally we, we have the first rehearsal, which uh, is bad, except for Andrew Strong, who already is fucking belting. Uh, and I think this is a, it's a great scene to show a band playing badly. It's even better to show half a band playing badly because it establishes all of the conflicts For sure. that are going to come up in the next hour of the film. And I think it's done really economically. And again, Andrew Strong is so, just so good and so magnetic in this movie. And so many inner band conflicts arise from one member of the band just being more talented than another and there being resentment there. It's, it's such a natural thing to have. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, you know, when you have your first rehearsal, it's, uh, you're kind of scouting each other out as a band. You're trying to figure out like, okay, what can this person do? And then to see Andrew Strong, see Deco just have it. It's a bit demoralizing for other people in the band. Yeah, that's the part of rehearsal where I get put on a triangle duty and they're deciding who's got what. They just pull the saxophone out of my fingers and replace it with a tambourine. <laughs> it just drops down from the rafters. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I, I made it sound very glossy in talking about the book of a group coming together and you still, part of the great balancing act of this movie is you, it is, it's about people coming together and also about them fraying and, and disliking and, and, fights breaking out between people uh and it's what i think makes the the music scenes like a cut above i mean a lot of reasons why this movie is just a cut above a music movie or a movie about musicians that these performances also have a lot of uh glances between characters and these kinds of like brief exchanges that are mostly nonverbal, uh where you can tell that they're starting to hate one another essentially we have two moments with with Joey the Lips when it becomes clear that sex and music are completely inseparable for him. And the first is when he's teaching Dean how to play the saxophone. And he's, you have to imagine it's a woman's nipple, you know. Uh, imagine which woman it is. Um, and then 
that's the only way that you can really play music well is to live in the headspace of constantly just boning um and then it is an insane advice to play a wind instrument you don't suck on a reed <laughs> like you you, you you blow on it and um maybe I, maybe like jokes on me and they're like frank you don't you don't blow raspberries on nipples that's that's the move like <laughs> And then the other moment is is uh, when Dean catches uh, Joey and Natalie making out um, behind the rehearsal space, um, where again, like this, the the this the interconnectedness of of sex and music is not just theoretical. Joey just fucks all the time. Um, it is one of his two drives in life is to play the horn and to fuck, um, and that. Inevitably is going to lead to conflict. Um, but then finally they play the first show, which I think is this is the this is where I think the clean breaking point in this film is the build up to the first performance, and then from from the first show on, I think is just performance, performance, performance. Um, um, but yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about Mika. Let's talk about heroin. And uh, let's talk about performances. Nick is the bouncer they recruit. Or is it Mika with an M? Yeah, Mika. Uh, like like Mickey Mouse. Love, love this guy. He's yeah. great. This love is this another guy. great just like, one scene performance. Just like a wiry nut job. <laughs> and it's these realistic, really empathetic touches here that make me only dislike the black market subplot more. Because Mika looks like the dudes who beat me up in high school where it wasn't. <laughs> Just it, it's not just some like pile of testosterone that's like six feet tall, make it small and wiry and tattooed and like has his tongue sticking out sometimes and just like <laughs> shaved head and just it's just this little fucking grease monkey of a bullet. It's great. Um yeah, and, and get like weirdly loyal to the band. Um like a a an agent of chaos but 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 not malicious. Uh yeah. A violent meanie, but one whose energies can be directed towards towards good or to towards forcing fourteen year olds to you know stop throwing underwear. <laughs> yeah, no, he's working the crowd at this at this at the at the at the commitments show in the in like the parish like bingo hall basically, and it's just uh, another. I mean. The other half of these great performance scenes is how much good crowd work and just footage Alan Parker gets of the audience and all these like working class stiffs. I actually uh, lined up and cleaned up. I love the crowd work in this first performance because this is the first time you realize, like, where the band realizes that they're good uh, and that they have an effect on people. I actually think it's diminishing returns, and by the third performance, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be pretty critical of Alan Parker, but. Um, I think in this this first this f- this first concert, this is really well directed. Um, it the band plays very well, and that's nice. But like, it all it feels like a real performance, and the crowd, and they keep cutting to like the same little girl who just looks so so happy. Um, and that and she's a great audience surrogate because this is the first time you hear them play uh, well, and it made me as happy as it made that girl there's a kind of mostly silly interview that jacobin has with adam mckay mm-hmm. he's got a he talks about the um 
Do you know the band Chumbawamba? Yes. Either of you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're tub thumping the I get knocked down, but I get up again. Oh, yeah. You're never gonna, yeah. Um, and he makes this case that it's, even though it is just like sort of populist, fun music, that because it has such a role in, and because of when it comes out in the 1980s as the, as the British coal miners are striking against Margaret Thatcher's government, that it somehow has this kind of radical power in creating class consciousness, and that, quote, the defiant chorus still stuck in the heads of millions to this day was about working class resilience, even after all the defeats, quote, I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never going to keep me down. And how kind of that is McKay's model of, like, politics in his movies is, like, how do I smuggle in class solidarity and populism? And I think that that is sort of what The Commitments is about, and why it makes this case that soul is, a, is like, the people's music, and soul is, like, a music that has a political edge to it, even if it's largely romantic in my eyes. Yeah. And it's and it's a bit trickier in this case, too, because there's also the racial element with soul. And, um, and how, obviously, I mean, there's this is a bunch of white Irish people playing, you know, African-American music. Yeah, there's that kind of, there's that scene that is aged pretty badly when, um, uh, I think Jimmy and, and, and Joy the Lips Fagan is kind of coaching the whole band to be like, come on, say it with me, guys. The Irish are the Negroes of the world. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, and, and I think that's, that is a thread that is much more present in the novel where it's kind of revealed that, that Joey is really a deeply problematic guy who thinks playing jazz is an insult to black skin and, uh yes um but i think in in the film it's i mean the the music is whitewashed and we're gonna we can talk about the soundtrack later but also um it seems innocently so and and the band seems i mean there's several uh little like throwaway lines of dean playing saxophone for children and turning aside and saying i'm black and i'm proud where it's now like there's yeah. there's real racial solidarity here, which I think, in the eyes of Alan Parker and and the people making this film, is genuine. I don't, I don't think they're, and which is not to say that unconscious bias doesn't exist or that like whitewashing music is acceptable, but I do think the the politics of this film are sincere, uh, if not correct. One hundred percent. Well, yeah, I would argue almost too sincere in that in that sense. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's sometimes to it, to its own detriment, its in, inability to examine itself um, because of that sincerity. Um, the show ends with um, an amp explosion, and uh, and and the the band sort of realizing the the ability to narrativize themselves. Um, they're all waiting in the hospital um, for the bassist to get out of uh, to get out of his examination, and they they start talking about like what it would do for their careers if if you know one of them died on stage. Um, and I think this is like this is the beginning of self mythology that leads to ego problems. So this is a narrative way to look at it. But again, this is something that's not in the novel, but I think is actually a clever inclusion in the film to to foreshadow the collapse that's coming 
Yeah, and there's another, I really like that hospital scene for all these mangled bodies that are shown around. I think it's kind of another way of kind of hinting at the troubles in Ireland. And for, I think having these kind of earnest and sort of uh, blockheaded politics at its heart has, I think, a super deft touch for showing disparity uh, around Ireland. The next serious scene of note, we have a couple more rehearsal scenes, but then we see we see Joey having sex with Bernie. This is really funny. Um, yeah. Who who are they listening to? They're Shaft. It's the Shaft. It's the Shaft theme song from Isaac Hayes. Because <laughs> it has that whole spoken intro about, like, who is the man, the, like, who's the private dick with the best dick or something. <laughs> and Joey the Lips Fagan in his hairy, like, emaciated body and ponytail <laughs> just dips into frame. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you know what? Bernie's down with it. Um, and from there, uh, we see, uh, Joey Lips talking about Elvis, uh, to Cole Meany. And, uh, I don't think this is a particularly important scene, but I do, I do want to just talk about Cole Meany's face yeah, as he out. watches yeah. <laughs> Joey tell a story about Elvis, just in, just in total awe of this man, uh, probably making up a story about his favorite musician. But um, I just call him Meany. He's the best. He's great in this movie. And the band loses its first member, though, even after they've oh, had their great true. gig. It's true. Yeah, their uh, drummer, uh, sick to death of Deco, quits because he fantasizes about murdering him uh, and, yeah. and reveals that he's... Hum- luckily, it's replaced by someone who is in no way homicidal. <laughs> Oh, Micah, Micah. Great. And and uh, immediately after this, we have uh, another rehearsal in which Jimmy lays down the rules that, that no sex is allowed anymore. Uh, and then Natalie immediately hits on him. Uh, <laughs> which, again, I don't know if this is a particularly important scene, but like watching this when I was 14, just going... How could you say no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it broke my heart as a 14-year-old. I I just wanted the best for Jimmy Rabbit. Yeah, and then and then we sort of another sort of montage of of playing and an another great gag that's thrown in which is uh James the piano player going to confession um and telling his priest that uh that he fantasizes about the women in the band. And also, he he doesn't sing hymns anymore. He just thinks about when a man loves a woman, and uh, the priest says, "Oh, actually, that's that's not a Marvin Gaye song." Yeah, the the like even the priest, the most button up member of this community, is like, it's kind of a freak, you know. One of the easiest tropes to win me over is just like when the priest is cool, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think it's a great bit. I laughed really hard. It's it's great. Um, uh, Micah joins the band. Uh, and then we have the third gig, uh, the final gig of the show. I, I am curious to hear your thoughts on on this performance first before I, I kind of lay into it. I love it. I sent this clip, I sent a clip of this performance to my mom like the following morning as a way to try to recommend and encourage her to watch The Commitments because I think it's a movie she would enjoy so much. Uh, they're, they're playing in kind of their best club yet. It's definitely their, I think it, in the novel and in the movie, it's meant to be sort of their apex or like their best 
their best game they've done yet, both in terms of the venue and their, and their own performance. Yoko is great. He does try a little tenderness from Otis Redding, and it's Andrew Strong. He knocks it out of the park. Like it's a it's a great rendition. Um, even though Jay Z and Kanye have kind of like brainwashed me into only thinking of when they sampled it and watched the throne when I hear that song now, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I think I think the final gig, the stakes are higher than ever. They're ex- they're waiting for Wilson Pickett to come jam with them. Yes, and and they keep waiting and keep waiting and keep playing more music, and so they feel like they have to just play better and better, and this and the songs get better and better. In my opinion, Alan Parker does have this wild move where he he does a lot of zoom ins, uh, whenever the audience is applauding them after a after a song, it's kind of a weird touch, but I do like it because it does feel like he is bringing concert movie mentality over to making it. And I and I actually like how there's there's a bit less crowd work than earlier on, say at the Heroin Kills show, because I I feel like it mimics the way the viewer is feeling and how you're just as they're becoming better as a band, you're becoming more enraptured by their performance and the crowd becomes a little less beside the point. You're all all there for this, for the music. There's less scuffles and bullshit around it. Yeah. And even though when, uh, before their encore, they go back to the green room and are just like cussing each other out and yelling and the, the, the harmony of the band is falling apart and they're, they just seem to genuinely hate each other and are shooting each other dirty licks until the moment that like the first chord plays in their song and then they're just locked in and in the performance. It's it's kind of unbelievable. It's a super good touch from Alan Parker, I think, in, in managing these performances. Yeah, I mean it's it's what I expect it was like to be in say Crosby Stills Nash and Young at their apex when they were getting into fist fights in the green room before gigs because they hated each other because their drug use was wearing on each other. Um yeah, it's the one part of the movie I think that um, is a little more conventional, like other rock movies, but I think it does better than almost any. Yeah, especially because I think that it doesn't try to... Like, Deco is sort of obviously the problem maybe at the heart of it, but even then there's still just too much, like, there is too many egos, there's too much people sleeping with each other. It doesn't try to say, like, oh, well, that's when, like, heroin like the band started using heroin and that's when they go downhill or something it doesn't have a i think yeah. a single plot point that it points to as as the as the reason why the relationships fray it just these like ensemble scenes of them in the greener it's just too much yelling to really follow the, the the narrative reasons why they're angry at each other almost which which i enjoy no it's it just it feels it feels natural and, and inevitable and i do think that is that is the strength of this writing because again characters don't have that much time to establish themselves and their conflicts with each other and just like you know alan parker's direction and and their sort of non-speaking interactions with each other are able to express those dynamics between each other i mean it's it's very much spoken in deco versus everyone else but there are you know smaller jealousies between the various members of the band that i do are are clearly expressed and i think that is 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 really well done. No, this the the, the deteriora- deterioration of this band um, does not feel gimmicky. It it feels like this is what happens when there are twelve people in a band that would not be hanging out otherwise. The two big uh, moments in this performance, besides the performance itself, are 
Mika beating the shit out of the black market guys, rescuing Jimmy. Um, Which I I love. Like it is it is super fun. Like Mika's great. He like I. It's why I like I enjoy the payoff of that plot line, kind of against my own wishes. You know. Uh huh. No, it's it's great for Mika, but I don't. It doesn't need to be in this movie. I think and and again, Mika is so great just like playing the drums like a lunatic that I don't, I don't know if he needs this moment um, to, to make me adore him. Uh, but I do, I do adore Mika. Yeah. And he, you know, beats up Deco later. So <laughs> <laughs> beating people up. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah, no yeah. dearth of that. And then the other big moment is uh, Jimmy gets uh, an offer for a record dealer from uh, Egypt records, which, uh, you know, they've made it. Yeah. Until, Jimmy goes backstage where all hell is broken loose. Yeah, I just want to say on the record offer, I love how it's not, it's not the golden goose of an offer. Like, it's a small label. They're very upfront. They're like, we can't pay you, but we can give you some recording time and like, only for one day. Like, it's not, they haven't been given like a lottery ticket of an offer, but it is, a, but it still feels like a really good, really well earned next step for them <laughs> to be successful musicians until he goes backstage. And I think this is where it's sort of, I think Alan Parker's direction kind of loses me a bit, the, 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 the chaos of backstage. It feels a little too rehearsed and slapstick and, you know, um, there are 18 parties fighting all at the same time. And it's, it's funny, but it's, it, it, it kind of, it loses that sort of realist edge. The dialogue's almost a little too good at that point. Yeah. Like- and and there's a, a visual punchline of after Mika beats the shit out of Deco, where you know a fan comes and helps him up and wipes off his face and then thrusts an autograph in him, and like that's a cute little visual gag. But like I don't know if it's if it's super necessary for this this part of the film. And that's pretty much it. The band breaks up. I would say a notable difference from the book and the movie in this very last scene is that. In the book, the band starts, some members of the band kind of come together and reform a new iteration. And I think, I don't remember which genre they switch to, but they switch out of soul and are going to try a new genre. It's country punk. It's country punk. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's interesting because it actually is quite different from the movie in which they all split up and all have their own solo careers to not really great success. And you get a sense that the commitments was the peak of what they'll ever have. And with that is the implication that the, that soul music was kind of the best version of what they could give working class people. And it was kind of their like most authentic art form they could do. Whereas in the, in the book at the conclusion, they decide that country punk is like also something that the people of Dublin. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's, it's like a great joke. And it sort of suggests that like, maybe there isn't really one genre you can claim as the people's music. And that's why like, they're always like trading in new shit and why genres in the top 40 is inherently meant to cycle and change. And that there really isn't a one genre that is the people's music. Like the commitments, the movie says that soul is that genre. Yeah. I, I, I don't love this ending. Um, it gives Jimmy a nice send off. He gets together with, with Natalie. It's strongly implied. And, and she has a, it's, and it says that she has a solo music career and so does Deco and everyone else kind of goes their separate ways. So that's a nice send off for Jimmy. But I think, again, it strips him of his hustler edge where in the novel, he immediately is like, 
immediately on to the next thing. He always knows what the people want, um, which I think is is a stronger character note for him that is cut out, which is a bummer. Though it's nice that he got with Natalie. So the commitments was obviously a, a small movie from a, a kind of nothing novel with, with with not much expectations that became a pretty huge hit, um, mostly in the UK but also in the US. It was nominated for a million BAFTAs. It got a, an Academy Award nomination for best editing, which is really wild for a you know an Irish comedy um, to to strike Academy voters in that way. Well, and especially because editing is such a editing is kind of the, uh, especially lately has really become the, uh, like it, it accompanies best picture nominations. Typically, it's pretty rare for a movie to get just editing and not best picture, unless it is basically like a concert movie or mm-hmm. something like that that excites people. And even weirder for a foreign film to sneak into best editing. But you know, unless I mean, it's Parasite or Roma, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm gonna say it is it is deserved though. Like a lot of these jokes are heavily reliant on a quick cut immediately after a punchline. This is a this is a really sharply edited movie. So I'm very happy that it was recognized in that way. Um, but the way that this movie was truly recognized was via its soundtrack, which absolutely went fucking bananas. It went five times platinum in Australia alone. To date, it has sold over 12 million copies. Um, and it got, and all of this despite like pretty resoundingly mediocre reviews from music critic. Uh, um, Robert Criscow, who's the sort of the, the, the dean of rock criticism, the sort of legendary critic for the Village Voice, uh, described it as a sort of boring Blues Brothers-esque ca- uh, Caucasianification um, that, quote, sacrifices idiosyncrasy for competence. Critics saw it as like clean, whitewashed covers of great songs, but that sort of pale to the real thing. And I think that is a fair criticism. And it makes me a little bit sad that this sort of this film's greatest legacy is, is as a, a Blue Eyed Soul cover album. But that is, unfortunately, I think the greatest legacy of this movie. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's interesting you mentioned Robert Criscow too, because he, he actually gave the novel a absolutely glowing review um and loved it and yeah didn't have those criticisms of the novel yeah those are very specific to the soundtrack and i think for me apply a a little less to the movie maybe just because it's contextualized by this narrative um because you actually get to see north dublin and Barrytown, um and what this yeah the people making this music what their lives are like um but yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I agree with you. And as someone who absolutely loves, you know, soul music and R&B, um, as good as some of these covers are, you know, they're not, it's not James Brown. It's not mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin. And diluting that even a little bit and whitewashing it um, and just presenting it as a CD as opposed to a, like a fully fleshed film or, or novel. It, it it feels it feels different and yeah, soul light. I think it's a three volume CD that they came out with it. Like it is kind of remarkable how much of a weird cottage industry the commitments has become, and in that there's even a uh, a band that is comprised of some of the cast members and other folks. Uh, that is, I think it's called the Commitments Reunion Group or something that still does shows like 
even like three or four years ago. I pulled a quote of what Rodney Doyle thinks of that group specifically, uh, saying uh, some of them continued to play as the commitments. I didn't and don't like the idea. The commitments were fictional and are better left that way, I think. Uh, and I'm with Rodney, especially because the magic of the novel and the movie is that it's a, it's a mandala. It's all about this group coming together and then blowing apart as soon as it's done. And it really just, just takes the juice out of it that I can go and buy a ticket and see the commitments reunion tour, even though I still might. Like, I think it sounds great. I love the soundtrack. I know it's not as good as the originals, but I'm a sucker for competency over idiosyncrasy, man. Fair. Um, as as for the cast of the commitments, most of them sort of went back to being working but unexceptional musicians around Ireland. Um, Maria Doyle, I think, has has the sort of longest lasting, most successful film and TV career. Um, she puts out nine albums that I've mostly never heard of, um, but is also hangs around in sort of semi prestige TV for a while. She was in a, a like a Showtime version of The Tudors. Um, She's been working, which is great. Um, Andrew Strong is a uh, became a record producer mostly. Um, he also had a band that was mostly sort of ignored, but had, had a pretty successful career as a producer. Um, and then Glenn Hansard, um, who is the guitarist in this film, uh, goes on to win uh, an Oscar in two thousand seven for best original song in a very sweet um, Irish romance called Once. Uh, and my father owns uh, three albums with that song on it because uh, he, he <laughs> threw it on every album that he did after that because that was once is also a musical movie, right? Like it's it's about musicians, yes. isn't it? It's about buskers in in Dublin falling in love and kind of also out of love. It's a sweet it's a sweet movie. I was very happy to to see that. He's doing well and got an Oscar. Um, and uh, my last note on life after the commitments is that Cole Meany reprised his role as Mr. Rabbit for the rest of the Barrytown trilogy. Though they, due to uh, IP reasons, they renamed him to Mr. Curly. Um, but it is the the other three novels in the Barrytown trilogy were all adapted. Uh, all They're all about the, the, the rabbit family. Um, so, uh, Colmini may return, um, which is great because I fucking love him. It's cool. It's at the end it's, of this movie. It's kind of like when, the, when they're like, James Bond will return next in Goldfinger. <laughs> it just says, Colmini will return next in the van. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, okay. Colmini so should play James Bond after, uh, after <laughs> like a pudgy 65 year old dude. <laughs> I would fucking love that. Um, he would be. He should. He should be like Q or something, though. He should. He should. He should have like a side role in a James Bond movie at this point. He should just like sell him a gun out of a car in one scene, and he would just like a, a goofy cab driver that James Bond uses at some point to get from yeah, place to place. Yeah. No, he's he's great. Uh, okay, last question. It's time to demean yourselves. Is Alan Parker's The Commitments? Is it a adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Or does it make you a little bit sad adaptation? No, we, we'll take we'll take turns. Um, Hank, you're the guest. Why don't you go first? It's a adaptation. 
I'd be betraying my father if I said it wasn't. He showed me this movie when he was, well, not when he, when I was um, 13. (laughs) 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 Yes, I was in the womb. No. Um, But yeah, he he showed it to me. I've I've loved it ever since. It's not a perfect movie. It has flaws. Maybe loses a little steam in the second half. But yeah, I mean, I think this book was, was craving you know, an adaptation like this. And I don't, I don't see how they could have done it that much better. Honestly, I got to give it a rad adaptation. It's, it's a sparse novel and it's a fun novel and a propulsive one. And I think the movie is so good at capturing the things that make the book great and seeing the spots that it can fill in without compromising it. And it's Alan Parker's really deft hand at showing the realism of Dublin and the desolation in Barrytown without it being too weepy or without it being kind of demeaning or patronizing and still finding time to include great moments like Joey the Lips' mom playing violin. It's a adaptation for me. So I'm going to break with you guys, and I'm going to say that Alan Parker's The Commitments is a sad adaptation. I think it's 80% there. I think the first first half of this film is unbelievable. It's so funny. It's so full of life. I think Alan Parker really deftly balances the the humor, which is pretty much pulled directly from the text, with uh, sort of a visual flair that to, to show the life outside of the world that Roddy Doyle created. And then the second half of the film hits, and it becomes a concert movie. And I actually think it's a pretty bad concert movie. These are really great performances from really talented musicians. And I think that first performance in the Heroin Kill show... Parker starts, he starts to lean too heavily on just shot, reverse shot of just audience reaction versus the band's performance. And I think the music begins to lose some of that power. And I, to kind of demonstrate what a great concert film can do with music visually, I've sent you guys a link to a clip from uh, The Last Waltz, which is Scorsese's uh, concert film about the band. It's Muddy Waters performing Manish Boy, and Muddy Waters is, at this point, I think in his 70s, he's a little bit older, and uh, he shot from profile, and the camera slowly kind of zooms in on him as Muddy Waters just builds up steam, and by the end of the song, he's stomping his feet, and he's shaking his fists, and, and the camera's right on his face, and, and it's the same angle, and it'll, it'll zoom out a little bit, but he sort of sucks your attention in and then finally at the very end of the song Scorsese cuts to a front view and you can finally only at this point can you see Muddy Waters at his pinnacle and that is a great moment in a great concert film Alan Parker just he didn't have the vision of how to accentuate the music and express visually the power that it has, except by using the audience as a surrogate for the viewer. And I think that's lazy. So I want to say, I, I, I agree partially with what you're saying, Caleb. I also think it's a little unfair to say Alan Parker isn't as good at directing musical sequences as Martin Scorsese. He's <laughs> 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 maybe the best ever. Um, but The Last Waltz, I don't think, has gone quintuple platinum in australia you know so it is like i'm not and i i'm not saying that like this is clearly better don't misunderstand me 
even if I don't think the comparison of those two artists is fair, the world kind of does and has chosen Alan Parker over over the last waltz. And it's and and the last waltz is generally seen as one of the great concert films of all time. And another film that's seen as one of the great concert films is Alan Parker's The Wall. He's not some schmuck. He has done a good concert film. But in this, he just, I think he flubbed it. And I think the back half of this film, I'm not going to lie to you, I was a little bored. And I shouldn't be bored by a band this good. And I was. I should say this is a, this is a good movie. It's just, it's just not a great one. And I just think that's a shame. Hank, where can our listeners find you? Or do you have anything you'd like to plug? Not really. <laughs> like, well, you can find me in Minneapolis. Um, Henry Hytel, plug your published works. You're a great writer. Where can people find your work? Come on. Well, great's pushing it when you wouldn't call the commitments great. Uh, <laughs> 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 you can find my fiction in Ruminate Magazine, Stone Coast Review, The Rush. Check it out, I guess. Um, I also, sidebar, have a unpublished novel where I tried to kind of steal Roddy Doyle's use of um, lyrics as dialogue, and, and it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, been a, he's been an influence, not necessarily for the best, though. To be fair, though, that was your, you were telling, that's the novel where it's all about uh, scatting jazz musicians, right? <laughs> yes, so, yes. <laughs> yes, a lot of Shiba Duba Dees. Yeah. Skilly <laughs> <laughs>